calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Whether we're just conquering worlds or going on vacation, either way, we're here. It's episode 477 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I actually just got my voice back recently. I got my whole house got sick. I lost my voice right after I published last week's show. It's finally starting to come back, so I'm a little excited for that. But a couple of interviews that I recorded before that happened, one was for Season 2 of Domino, which comes back this Sunday on MGM+. Plus. I've got Matthew McNulty here with me, who plays Gaius Augustus, and Cassia Smutniak, who plays Livia. Oh, I love the two of them on screen together. We'll get all the juicy details about Season 2 and what's going on with Rome. Also got to catch up with Emma Hunter, who plays... Nora Finley Cullen on Moonshine, which is going to be coming to the CW today. Actually, tonight, if you're listening to this on Friday, it's a fun show. It originally debuted in Canada, finally coming over here to the States. So, yeah, wait till you see this crazy family and what they've got going on. Also, comic book reviews back on the show this week. No real new shows or movies to talk about. So I thought I'd do a couple comic book reviews, give you a Comic-Con update news-wise, and a couple of other things. As well, but let's talk about Domino with Matthew McNulty and Cassia Smutniak up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Kirsty Bryan from Tales of the Walking Dead, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. The balance of power and succession is on the line in season two of Domino, which premieres on MGM Plus this Sunday. And I wanted a chance to catch up with the stars of that show, Matthew McNulty, who plays Guys Augustus. And, of course, Cassia Smutniak, who plays Livia. They are so delicious on screen together. And I had such a great time talking to the both of them about this upcoming second season. So let's get into it. So normally I would ask you, what's the favorite thing about your character? But I want to switch things up today. So, Matthew, what's your favorite thing about Livia? Relentless drive. You know, like I think she's there's no there's no stop in <laughs> Kasha is the actor, the actor playing um, Livia, <laughs> the thing that I, I love most. But no, uh, just the fact that she, like, Livia is the pure driving force of the whole series. And when Livia stops, the world slows down. When Livia gets going, things things happen. So I think that's that's probably what I, I like most about her. It's just she's relentless in everything, you know, in every scene, in every moment. There's not a moment or relationship or interaction that's wasted with her. She's like so sharp, so intelligent. I wish I was playing her. All right, let's flip that over to you, Cassie. What's your favorite thing about Gaius? Wow. 
Um, well, no, no, no. My favorite feel, thing about Guy is that he's a character I wouldn't expect. He show his vulnerability. He's real. He's very strong and absolutely unpredictable. And that's very sexy. And this is, and it's dangerous and it's very powerful. And I think the way Michael decided to play this character, it was shown so many times and he gave so much depth into the character. Not because Augustus is one of the most important Roman characters, but also because as a, as a man, as a, as a, as the male actor, he, he decided, this is how I feel. He decided to give much more depth into it. And I see, and I see very strongly his feminine side, you know, which doesn't mean weakness. It means many other layers. And Augustus is one of these characters that is very easy to talk about and very easy to find information about him and very easy to find everything he did in Rome, walking around Rome. And you think you know everything about him because he was just the, the strongest, he built the most, he changed the most in Rome and, and Rome was extremely powerful when he was ruling. But how much little we know about Augustus and his private life, you know, about his feelings, about his fears. And, and I think it was, it was not easy to put everything apart you know about this character and build something that is way more complex. And you didn't think she'd be able to come up with anything, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was very well said, Gossie, very well said. <laughs> I want you to both jump in on this because we know from the trailer that there's a famine going on in Rome right now. And history tells us it doesn't make the ruler very popular. So just how chaotic are things going to be in Rome upon their return and how much pressure is Gaius under? Yeah, m massive pressure because they've been away for too long, really. And, and they've left Rome in control of, of the, the Senate and the, the, the kids and, and without you know complete power. Like the, Rome is unstable. Gaius is unstable. Um, the family are unstable, so it's really important. It's like a, a, a kind of vital moment in in the history of um, Augustus that they they get this straight and they get this sorted out and they bring stability back to to Rome. So we've kind of hit the season in a, where everything's on a knife edge, really, and it all you know it all depends on how how they deal with this and how they retake control because the control's been lost by the time they they get back. And also it's, you know, it's, it's getting, we're getting, it's all about succession now. The kids are in the age and, and it's the most important thing. So the fight, the internal family fight about the succession and the political issues and Olivia's secret plan of restoring the Republic, it all depends about the succession and, and anyone who will succeed Gaius will get power and 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 it's the most important he knows that he knows he's we're getting older and we're losing our power because of that and and the kids are just not ready or you know so the the, the succession is the main thing of the of the second season it's all these marriages and all this putting people in different places and all the other great new char characters that will come in into the show it, it's it's all about the power 
but there's much more depth depth to it. The stake is higher. Oh, it's much, much higher. I actually want to talk about the boys for a second because Cassie, for you specifically, I mean, when they, they had left room for three years, the boys are a little bit older now, but without any spoilers, and I know that's going to be tough because I've seen it. How much trouble have they gotten themselves into while uh, mom and dad were kind of off? It's a yeah. mess. <laughs> She's shaking her head <laughs> like a mom would. It's like, yeah, those boys. No, that's not. It's, it's really, we have, well, so many people waiting in a line for, uh, for Gaius's throne and not, you know, and Livia has her two sons, Tiberius, super clever. It's kind of the other side of Livia, but he doesn't want it. And Drusus, he wants it, but he is not clever enough. He's passionate. He has all the passion and all the energy, but he's just not the right person. And then there's Octavius and there's, uh, all the other characters and Gaius is playing his game again. And, and he knows that Livius's children in power are just not the right thing. So, and then we still have Marcella's death kind of, you know, always there unresolved. The past is, is there combined together with the, with the present and the future. It's all one. And all these characters are stru- struggling with their demons, I must say. And there's plenty of those to go around for sure. Before I let you both go, I want to ask you, Matthew, I'll start with you on this. And again, we're going to try and avoid spoilers as much as we can here. But who is your character's biggest threat this season? Because we're talking about the succession and that, you know, like that that's a theme throughout the, the whole series. It is the boys, you know, like they're, uh, we, we kind of laid that laid that down in, in the first series and, you know, the, the uh, secret plan of Livia to raise them up. So there's that, but it's not, I mean, it's, I guess it's not just that. It's, it's who he sets up for the succession. So there's a new character um, comes in and he, you know, he's dangerous and and has his own agenda. Like in, in that first episode, just the social instability, um, that's that's a massive th- threat to him. So he needs to, you know, keep it, keep that plate spinning. Um, but there, there are so many threats. But I guess, again, you know, throughout as well, is Livia. Livia's a big threat. You know, she's kind of, she's the puppet master and he wants to, well, he thinks he is, but I think deep down he knows he's not. And he's got to really tread carefully around Livia because they do, they do love each other. But um, at the same time, they're probably prepared to destroy each other as well. So there's that threat. Cassia, for you, Livia's biggest threat is? Many. Uh, there's a new new characters, a bunch of new char- characters uh, jumping into the show. There's the Mishes, aristocratic men that's got a lot of power. There's Octavia, is, that is her biggest enemy since ever and since Marcellus's death, for sure, and uh, Scribonia. But the, honestly, the biggest threat is her biggest weakness, which is love for Gaius. Wow, that is so well Everything said. Everything else you- can be resolved. <laughs> Anything that, else can be resolved. Yeah, that is so true. And you guys will see exactly what they're talking about when season two of Domino returns to MGM plus on July the 9th. You guys are not ready for what you're about to see from these two. Cassia, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. And in the Roman society back then, there was always a lot of posturing, a lot of jockeying for position and things like that. But you see that even more in this second season, be- season because of the succession. And there's a whole bunch of, of twists and turns, even the beginning of the second season, I think you're really 
gonna love. So whether you're a Roman history buff or not, or you just love a lot of good drama, Domina is something you need to be watching. The first season already on MGM Plus, season two premiering this Sunday. I cannot wait for you guys to see. Even this first episode of the second season has a really good ending that might shock you just a little bit. Again, thanks to Cassia and Matthew for joining me to talk about Domina season two. Up next, going to talk about the first season of Moonshine, which is going to be premiering tonight, which is Friday on the CW. I'll talk to Emma Hunter about that next on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Angelica Washington from DC Star Girl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy podcast. So this is almost like a warning sign of make sure you check out the place you go before you go on vacation because Moonshine is going to be airing every Friday (laughs) on the CW and it is about this crazy family and here to talk about that as a member of that family is Emma Hunter. Emma, how you doing? I'm so great. Thanks for having me on. So real quick though, Emma, you've actually been living with the show for a while now because it originally came out in 2021 now finding new life on the cw what's it like to bring this show to a whole new audience really oh my god we're so excited we're so excited to have that little slice of canada that sort of nova scotian east coast lobster lifestyle exposed for what it is which is breathtaking and beautiful and tragic and romantic and gossipy so i think it's the cw is a great place for to land and i hope that your gorgeous country enjoys it Oh, I'm I'm sure that we will because when I was watching it, I definitely got like vibes of of my time in Maine and New Hampshire and things like that. So so yeah. I kind of I kind of get that. But let's talk about this family here for a second. What's it like being a member of this Finley Cullen family? <laughs> it's so it's such a bizarre experience because we all get dropped into this actual campground and we shoot and live within sort of ten minutes of each other, and the only place to really hang out as this amazing lobster bar that turns into like a Motown club. And so you sort we sort of all got cast in these roles and then we're there for a summer for four months and we're at this lobster club, like pounding lobster and then kind of having white wine after with a Motown band. And it really does blur the lines of where does the show start and our real life begin. And the cast is just an absolute blast. Like it, it does sort of mimic this familial euphoria that goes along with the family in the show so it's just uh, it's a crazy group of actors and a crazy cast and a crazy story and it all kind of creates this this wild world and it's been a real privilege to be a part of it and i'm definitely going to avoid spoilers here but i do have to mention one thing that i saw in the first episode because i actually said out loud as i'm watching this by myself is that a corded phone like an actual like regular (laughs) phone so talk talk about that for a minute though is this kind is this a place that's not only like like a small town, but is this a time capsule as well that you're putting us in here? Oh, I so love this question. Yeah, it's like it's interesting because it has this vintage vibe, not because it's set in the 70s. It's a contemporary show, but there are those sort of pockets in various places in the world where time sort of just stood still around 72 or 73. And, you know, the rock station plays the same songs and there's a vibe and a smell and a rug and a record player. And it really does you know, you'll drop into places like this every so often. And the moonshine really is reflective of this time stood still and sort of the hippies and all that kind of, that kind of vibe. And it it really does feel like home too. I think for, and for anybody, it's not just for like kids who grew up seventies, eighties, nineties, but it has that feeling of like coming home somewhere safe and retro with all the old stuff. And yeah. Oh my gosh. Be with that phone with a cord. It, It takes me back for sure. 
longest chord I've ever seen in my life too, by the way, which, 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 is, which was so great. I did love that too. I also have to say though, Emma, because we're talking about Nora and as somebody who spent 20 years in the radio business, that that's, vi- that's a vibe that hits me home. So what was it like to play Aww. this character? Oh my God. I love her so much. Like I just love her so much. It was such a, a gift to be able to play her. But see, you would have been really mad at me because I remember the first day on set, I did all this um, research about music and how to choose a record and all that stuff. But I hadn't, I hadn't looked up when you, you turn up a song. I thought the, the knobs go up and all the gaffers on set, right? The guys who run cable and run camera, they're like, they're techies, right? And they know all about like audio equipment. And so I did this thing of like, you know, let's throw it over to Fleetwood Mac for like a doozy. And I pushed up these these two knobs and the whole crew just looked at me like, you amateur. Like, <laughs> that's not how you do it, man. And I like, you know, I nailed this scene. I had to like, I have to like use a lighter at one point and sip on some red wine. It's supposed to be like one o'clock and there's like props and all this stuff. And got the lines and all of a sudden I just see all these guys just like you are a novice girl get it together so I learned very quickly how the radio booth the mechanics of a radio booth and it's so awesome it's so cool to be kind of in your own space and running your own show if it wasn't as difficult as it is kudos to you I think I would love it it just was a it was a blast yeah oh it definitely has has moments where it can be really really fun for sure especially with with, for for Norma because she's got that small town vibe she can kind of do what she wants right yeah, and she does. Oh, she does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll get into that here yeah. in a second. But I want to, <laughs> I want to stretch things out a little bit and talk a little bit more about the family because we know kind of the main focus is, you know, Lydia coming back into the fold. How much of a black sheep yeah. is she of the family at this point? Yeah, she really is. Jen Finnegan brings this really kind of authentic, urbanite city it that whole thing or city idiot. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but that urban versus rural. That person who's gone away or as they call it in, in Newfoundland that's that province in Canada that's the if you've come from away and um, Lydia has sort of left her family tribe and gone off and lived in New York and has you know money and fancy clothes and fancy cars and she just sort of drops back into her old life and everything's kind of stayed the same and it's that juxtaposition between having left and come back and having your heart in two different places and you know who is the authentic you is it the new you that landed the life you always dreamt of or is there something pulling you back to the person you were before so um and Jen Finnegan just does such a beautiful job with the character of Lydia and I think there's I relate to her certainly a lot I ended up home but I've been away and go away often obviously for work so it's a really great depiction of that feeling but I think a lot of people sort of 30s and 40s have in their life of where do you land how do you drop back into your crazy family and is your crazy family a good or bad influence you know so and it what's great about this show is it doesn't really we're not like sort of pitching a morality lesson at people we just sort of show all all the different options and how they can like twist and turn your heart and I think yeah hopefully it resonates with people as a as a problem we've all experienced no doubt about that now you kind of paint Lydia is the troublemaker in a certain way, being the outsider coming back in. But uh, this is where we're going to try and tap dance around some spoilers here, Emma, because uh, how much trouble is Nora going to be causing? Because <laughs> I, I can tell you that I know that there's probably a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about Nora is I feel like Lydia's in everybody's business. She's just got her nose in everybody's business and is blowing up people's lives haphazardly, whereas Nora kind of 
I guess the best way to put it is that Nora sort of is not afraid of sex or conflict, which is not often depicted in strong female characters. She likes both of those. She's not afraid to have an argument and she sort of enjoys uh, the remorse in the boudoir. So that in itself can get her into trouble where most women would sort of shy away from being too vocal about either of those things. Nora just stands confidently in both of them. And that is empowering, but also gets her into a lot of trouble, not to mention uh, her sister's. But I won't say any more on that. I'll get in trouble. (laughs) No doubt about that. And we know that, you know, everybody's kind of fighting over the family business sort of thing. That's kind of one of the cruxes of the show. But here's my thing. I'm looking at like, okay, who could take this thing over here? Does anybody have their shit together enough to be able to do this, do you think, in this family? I mean, I feel like what I love about Nora is she's the one that's like, nah, I'd be crap at that. I can't. And I think everybody else has this moment. It's very it's very succession, but with a little bit of lobster, of that moment of, like, people sort of all of a sudden when the keys are on the table and they have their shot, that sort of narrative starts to run in their head, like, yeah, why not me? Why shouldn't it be me? And they're all, you know, they are all riddled with their own issues. So the who of it all is, I'll leave that up to the viewer, but uh, the question of, like, you know, having never have thought about it and then all of a sudden being presented with like, maybe it should be me as something that, yeah, it's a real driver of the show and it makes it, it makes for some drama. That's for sure. Oh, there's a lot of drama, but there's a lot of fun to be had as well. I got to ask though, though, Emma, the, yeah. the moonshine's a very unique place and I use that both regularly and in air quotes. So I got to ask you, have you ever stayed in a place that was like the moonshine? Yeah, we stayed at, effectively the moonshine one night we all went to the lobster club because the band was playing and we got babysitters for our kids and you know took the next morning off to make sure that we weren't because there were some libations there and the whole cast plus girlfriends and boyfriends and anybody sort of over 21 all got together we had a big fire we went swimming under the moon and I think there was a phone with a cable and people played cards and it was guitars and it was that like I think, you know, we didn't have a lot of, like, I think there was one room with power. It was that whole experience of, like, just dropping into a place that had kind of stopped around 1975 and living in that world. And, you know, other than wearing the costumes from set, it was like, it was it was an epic night. It was one of those nights that we'll always remember. And, like, a lot of dancing and, like, just joy. So, yes, I have, and I would recommend. <laughs> nice, nice, excellent. That's definitely good to hear. Before I let you go, Emma, obviously, you know, we've seen shows and movies and stuff about dysfunctional families before, family businesses before. To you, what is it that's special about this show that really sets it apart, that makes people want to say, I got to be there on the CW every Friday night to watch this thing? Thank you for asking that. That's a very uh, kind question. I think what makes Moonshine a world you want to be in is the combination of familial discord, inherent authentic problems, and a lot of heart on and off screen. And I think that the joy and affection we have for that part of the world, coupled with the characters and the actors who play them, is just the most incredible combination. So I think it's, yeah, tune in, watch it. I promise you will enjoy it. And in real life, I'm a much I'm a much less naughty girl. <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to find out. We'll have to find out just how far Nora pushes it. We're going we're gonna to hop on our riding lawnmower. 
We're gonna get home. We're gonna yes. check. We're gonna check the backyard garden shed first, just in case there's anything in there, and watch oh Moonshine every Friday on the CW and oh. check out what this crazy family's got going on in her, especially Emma Hunter. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you, Beyond. What a pleasure this was. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I think that her comparison to Succession is a pretty good one with a much more crazy, dysfunctional, and very much stuck in time family. Like she was saying, it's a small, much more smaller town setting version of it. So it's it's not Succession, but it's similar enough. So if you enjoy that and you enjoy, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of family drama and a lot of there's a lot of fun moments in this show, especially in the early going, and there's 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 a couple surprises in that first episode too. Make sure you're watching Moonshine every Friday night on the CW next day on the CW app. I think you're really going to get a chance to enjoy this thing if you give it a shot. Again, thanks to Emma Hunter for joining me to talk about Moonshine. Up next, guess what? Actually, going to do some comic reviews this week for what feels like the first time in forever. I'm going to dive into that next. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside with the kids recently. And yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me. As well, it's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether it's a small town in Indiana or the biggest city in the world, comic book reviews are back. It's time for what I'm reading. And this week, got an early look at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Stranger Things, number one from IDW and Dark Horse, teaming up together for this one. And this one is written by Cameron Chittock, Pharaoh Pay on the art and cover art, too, by the way. Sophia, Sophie, excuse me, Dodgson on the colors and Russ Wooten. On the letters. Now, I think it's important to establish the timeline here. It's New York City, 1985. And I don't really want to spoil anything about this book because it doesn't come out until Wednesday. But you're probably thinking, okay, how do they connect these worlds? How do you make it make sense? This is a limited series. And, you know, you could talk about canon and all you want and things like that. But I will say, just as an overall, you know, look at the book after reading in this first issue is that they find a pretty good way to connect things and they really do 
make it make sense. And it and it actually expands your mind, especially if you're a Stranger Things fan. It expands your mind beyond Hawkins and the possibilities and a certain question that you might have about something. Again, I can't spoil this, and this is really tough. A certain question that you might have about a major element of the Stranger Things storyline is thrown in here, and you can say it's explained. Maybe you don't consider it that way, but you know, you'll find out when you read this book what I'm talking about. But I thought it was a really interesting way to connect that and how they choose and a certain character they use to sort of connect the two worlds of Stranger Things and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I thought was a really good choice. So it, they really do make it make sense more than you might think. But there's a reason why your favorite Stranger Things characters are in New York City. It's such a simple one. They're tourists. That's not a spoiler. I can tell you that. They're on a class field trip to New York City. Why or, or whatever, that's not important. and It doesn't really get discussed in this thing. But I will say that it's very difficult to capture the vibe of two different fandoms together. But yet I think that what they do in this book is they find a really good way to meld the personalities of the kids from Stranger Things. You know, I think they did, they did Dustin very, very well in this book. I think Mike was brought out very, very well. I thought that Max and Lucas, that, that dynamic, I thought they did a very good job with that. And Cameron Chittock should deserve a lot of credit for that for sure. And then you also got the Turtles who are established. They are a little grumpy for a very good reason. and But they still have their personalities as well. And it's funny, they kind of react to each other how you'd expect. That, that, that much I will tell you. And, and that's definitely fun when you get that meeting for the first time. And that's obviously not a spoiler because you knew they were going to meet in this book at some point, right? So I think they did a great job. With that, they did a wonderful job at establishing, you know, a night, you know, where's the story going to go? We figure that out pretty quickly in this first issue. They don't really waste a lot of time with stuff that they don't need to be wasting time on. So I like that they kind of cut right to the point. And with it being a limited series, you kind of have to do that. The art wise, it's kind of what you'd expect from our Turtles book. If, if that makes sense, if you read Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on a regular basis, the the, the Farrah Pay art is very Kevin Eastman-esque. I will say that, and I, that's a very good compliment that I can give. It has that Eastman vibe for sure. So you feel like you're in a Turtles book, but with also the Stranger Things characters there as well. And everything felt very 1980s too. And that's not an easy thing to do, and that's not an easy thing to sort of capture in art. But I think that Pharaoh and Sophia Dodgson both do that extremely well in this art and bringing out, especially with the colors too, because Sophie really does a good job at setting the tone and the mood and wherever they are setting wise, those colors are crucial, especially in the moments of the action scenes as well. So props to both artists on that for being able to bring that thing out. So yeah, if you get a chance to run to your local comic book shop on July the 12th. It's coming new comic book day. Get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Stranger Things number one. I don't think you'll be disappointed with it at all. If you love Dark Horse Comics and you're waiting for more from Howard and Lupe, it is finally here. It's the Lonesome Hunters, the Wolf Child number one from Dark Horse Comics, which is going to be out again on July the 12th. This from the mind and the pen 
of Tyler Crook, who you know from Harrow County, and I know from Harrow County, which is one of the reasons I started reading Lonesome Hunters in the first place. So if you're kind of out of touch on what Lonesome Hunters is about, it's about a old not-a-practice monster hunter named Howard, and he's been in hiding for a while. He comes across a young girl that basically lives in the same building that he lives in. They sort of stumble across these creatures, and it sort of activates everything that is Howard. There's a, there's a sword involved that he's supposed to keep safe that traces all the way back to his father, and it helps destroy these ancient evils, which they are now hitting the road to do just that, or are they? Because Howard maybe has other plans, and that's something we find out in this book, The Wolf Child. But this is also kind of like a spinoff from the main story as well, because they kind of they break down in this place, and it's it's very unexpected. But they are there for a reason, as it turns out, and you find out what that reason is when you start reading this book in the first place, because there's something going on in this town in Pennsylvania that is very, very supernatural. And they just sort of, again, just like how the book started in the first place, stumble across it, but it's called The Wolf Child, and you see the kid on the cover of the book, so that is no spoiler. And there is something about this kid that is just different. Now, are they going to be able to, are they going to get involved in this kind of battle that's going on between the people of the town and this beast that is a part of this town or not? That remains to be seen in this story, but it's very much a not a huge detour from the main story of the Lonesome Hunters because this feels like it's happening for a reason sort of thing. You know what I mean? So it's all the same characters from the Lonesome Hunters are still involved in this thing. It's just a different vibe. And what you find out is that this stop might be more important than you think it is. And it might have more implications than you think it does as you're reading this book. Again, I don't want to spoil anything, but this is not one of those spinoffs. It's like, oh, well, I can skip this and then wait for them to get back to the main story. No, 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 no. This is one you're going to need to read. It's almost like the second chapter of this story more so than it is a spinoff. So if you're reading The Lonesome Hunters and you want to continue reading this story, which I've really enjoyed over the course of its first run anyway, then this is appointment reading. You definitely need to read this because it's going to be a major part of the story. It reveals kind of what Howard's real plan might be. It also reveals a little bit of an expansion of the story as far as the monsters are concerned. And it also reveals something about, okay, I, I have to say this little bit of a minor spoiler, somebody else that might be after the sword as well. That's, that's all I'm going to tell you. All I'm going to tell you, there's a reason that you have to read this book, not just because it's really good, but because it is a major part of the lonesome hunter story. And if you're just a fan of Tyler Crook's art, like I am, you're just mesmerized every time you pick up one of his books, what he does, not just with his character designs, but with his setting designs and his creature designs has always fascinated me from the get go of Tyler Crook's career. Just the way he's able to set the tone of where he is, especially in smaller town settings. That is something that just, he just seems to really excel at like seriously excel at. So I, this, if you're a fan of Tyler Crook, and of supernatural fantasy anyway, this is a book you need to have for sure. And if you haven't read Lonesome Hunters yet from the beginning and you're interested, 
The, the trade is out already. It came out in February. You can find single issues, I'm sure, at your local comic book shop and digitally. The Lonesome Hunters is a really good monster story, but it's also a good story about young people and a very much older guy and how they interact together and how they kind of learn stuff from each other in a not necessarily a father-daughter type of way, but in a per, people with a similar mission kind of way. It's kind of like they're forced together, but they end up learning stuff from each other at the same time. It's it's really, really neat. So go ahead and check out The Lonesome Hunters, The Wolf Child, number one from Dark Horse, and just this story in general, if you haven't already. That's good enough for what I'm reading this week. There's a ton of great books out, though. Make sure you go to downandnerdypodcast.com. I'll try and tell you about more about them and follow us on social media as well. But up next, let's dive into some nerd news, talk about the first schedule release for Comic-Con this year. I'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Victoria Atkin, the voice of Evie Fry, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Getting you ready for the biggest nerd event of the year. It's time for nerd news. And yep, Comic-Con is going to be coming, it seems like, at least for now, going on as scheduled with a lot of the studios that are going to be attending. And some of, some of them I already talked about last week that aren't going to be attending. Well, let's focus on what's going to be happening at the actual show. I was looking at the Wednesday and Thursday schedule, which was released. Fridays won't be released until after I record this, so kind of, you know, no good to be talking about it now. But So Wednesday, the tradition is back with Warner Brothers doing their television screenings in Ballroom 20, which usually happens every year. So they're going to do something for Adventure Time. They'll show a new episode of Riverdale on Teen Titans Go!, They'll show some uh, screening of Mrs. Davis and the super-powered, the DC story documentary that's going to be on the Mac streaming service. So that'll be back. That was not available last year, so that's almost like a bit of a return to normalcy. But that's kind of where it ends for me anyway. I mean, there's going to be good some good stuff on Ballroom 20 on Thursday as well. You've got Ghost will be back at Comic-Con this year. Wheel of Time from Prime Video. Twisted Metal. The Peacock series of, you know, which is an adaptation of the popular video game. That'll be there. What We Do in the Shadows, which is usually a Sunday thing, I think. Going to be Thursday this year, and there'll be some stuff for Archer as well in there. So that's a pretty good lineup for Barroom 20. But then you go to Hall H. And this is the thing that, you know, Hall H is like the be-all, end-all camp out for stuff, right? And I look at the Thursday schedule for Hall H. And you've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which is going to kick off Hall H. Paramount kicked off Hall H last year with Dungeons and Dragons, so that's not really a big surprise. That's going to be happening. So that's big. But then you look at Inside India's History Making Sci-Fi Epic and Project K, and I'm like, okay, you know, that might be, you know, big for some people. And then Marvel's Spider-Man 2 was going to have a Hall H panel after that. Again, and, and that's big, but that's a 2.30 Pacific. That's it right now. For the Hall H schedule for Thursday. Yeah, Hall H could be done at 2.30 p.m. after that panel. So, like, say, 3.30-ish. Could be done by 3.30 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday. And that just blows my freaking mind. Like, I never thought that I would see that. Now, maybe you're going to say to me, James, it was done. It's usually done early on Thursday anyway. What's the big deal? And maybe I'm just not remembering that correctly possible not likely but possible okay so it just it it really is interesting to me that that is potentially what's happening for hall h now i'm sure friday and saturday will be different i know there's a lot more stuff that goes on 
on Friday and Saturday. Maybe I'm freaking out a little bit too much about Thursday. I understand that. But at the same time, it's just weird to see just a couple of things in Hall H. And then you've got a smattering of stuff in like in the in the room sixes. Like you've got the Mattel WWE Elite Squad panel, which is always a big action figure panel. Crunchyroll is going to have their thing. There's going to be a Sesame Street Live thing as well. A Power Rangers 30th Annual Celebration going to be happening there. And I don't want to really go through too much of this. They're going to have a Masters of the Universe Revolution conversation with Kevin Smith and the cast is going to be happening, which you would think would be in a Ballroom 20 type situation. It's not. And there's going to be a smattering of Adult Swim stuff that's going to be going on as well and and some other stuff from Warner Brothers Animation and Cartoon Network. And and there's a lot of big stuff that's going to be happening there and I'll have interviews coming for all that at Comic-Con. But just, again, I can't help but go back to the whole Hall H thing. And think to myself, this should be more, right? Like you would think that this would be bigger than it actually is. So I'm curious to see what happens with the Friday and Saturday and even Sunday schedules for Hall H. And Sunday you expect things to end early because that's the last day. And the, the, the show closes earlier anyway than it does on other days. But if it's this light... This could be the first year that I can remember. And, and, you know, I've only been going since 2017. I know others have been going longer. I can't imagine being able to just stroll into Hall H, not necessarily without waiting. There's still going to be a line. I mean, we're still talking about Spider-Man here. We're still talking about Turtles. That's huge, okay? I know this. People are going to camp out for Turtles alone. I know this. And likely for Spider-Man as well. So I'm not saying you're just going to be able to stroll up to Hall H and walk right in. But it, I certainly doubt people are going to be lining up starting on like Tuesday for the Thursday panels. I can't imagine that that's going to happen. So you might not be able to stroll into Hall H. It's still going to be full for definitely those two panels for sure. But it just seems weird that we don't have this massive presence in Hall H. And certain stuff that's in Ballroom 20, I'm thinking... What, you could move that to Hall H, right, just simply because of the availability of it to make a possibly bigger splash. I don't know. Just a thought, but I guess that wasn't in the cards for some folks. And is this subject to change? I'm sure it is. I'm sure that there's some stuff that could be a little bit different as we get closer, but we're already pretty freaking close. I mean, we're less than two weeks away now from the start of Comic-Con. So if there's going to be any changes that are going to happen, they might want to happen soon, if you know what I mean. So before I get into a couple of trailers that I want to talk about, I want to talk about something that there's been kind of a little bit of an outrage from fans that I didn't really expect. And I'll be honest, this was like news to me as well, to be honest. Variety put a report out that Disney Plus pulled one of their new sci-fi movies less than two months after it premiered. Now, let me see if you're familiar with this movie or not. It was called Crater. McKenna Grace was in it. Isaiah Russell Bailey was in it. Kid Cudi was in it. This came out on May the 12th. It was basically a movie about to be uh, about the story of this kid who was raised in a lunar mining company and it was going to be moved to a distant planet and he was going to be moved to a distant planet after his father's death. Before leaving, he and his three best friends hijack a rover to explore a mysterious crater and so on and so forth. So I barely knew this movie existed. So it's not like Disney Plus gave it a lot of advertisement, I don't think. And now they've removed it entirely. And now this happens, right? I understand that this happens. 
And, you know, of course, like Willow was removed back in May, I think it was. The Willow series that kind of fizzled out and was canceled. They removed that. And streamers are starting to remove stuff. That's the moral of the story here. And I'll get into that in a second. But to remove something less than two months after it premiered seems odd to me. Like, I get maybe there's licensing issues here, but I don't see the harm. Maybe there's residuals and royalties that are attached to this as well. Maybe that's part of the problem, too. Maybe somebody can educate me more on this. But to remove something in less than two months seems like it's a bit rash for some reason. Like, I don't understand why you do that. Like, even if nobody watched it, and clearly not a ton of people did, I'm not even sure that a lot of the people that are that are that are shocked and and offended and saddened by this actually watched the damn movie in the first place. Because if the as many people that are outraged by this actually watched the movie, it probably wouldn't have been removed in the first place. And I'm sure we'll get numbers on this at some point, right? But to remove it that quickly kind of sets off alarm bells to me. And maybe Disney and some other streamers are trying to create this sense of urgency. Right with us. We're like, hey, you better watch this when it comes out because if you don't and nobody seems to be watching it, we're just going to pull it. So you better watch it while you can. Maybe there's a little bit of that going on. So maybe there's, th- th- this is supposed to create alarm bells and, and we're feeding into it, feeding into the machine sort of thing, right? But at the same time, you also have to look at this and say, there's, there's so many of people that I've talked to that think that once you have something on a streaming service, it's just going to be there ready to go for you so you've got all the time in the world to consume it and reconsume it and it's almost like you own it well you don't and this is a big reminder of that that if you want to watch something you should probably watch it now you have no control over whether or not it stays there that's pretty clear even if one person watched this a thousand times don't you think they know that that it was one person that watched it a thousand times i'm sure that they do, and they're not going to keep something on there for one person or even a handful of people. There has to be a certain level of success for something to stay on a streamer. And it could always return, too, by the way. Maybe this is something where they go, oh, maybe more people were interested in, in this than we thought, so let's bring it back sort of thing. That could certainly happen. Doubtful, but it could certainly happen. But, I mean, you're not going to be seeing Mysterious Benedict Society. You're not going to be seeing the Mighty Ducks Game Changers, which I never get a chance to watch because that was removed. There was, you know, Why the Last Man was taken off of Hulu. So this is not something that's new for Disney and Hulu to do. And this is not certainly, I mean, Netflix has done this. They're not the only streamer to do this. This is just a friendly reminder that stuff gets removed from streaming services for one. And for two, might start happening sooner than you think if it's not popular. So this is, again... My alarm bell for physical media of if you want to own something forever, you better buy it on disc if it's available because you never know when it could get yanked from your favorite streaming service. There are a couple of very different trailers to talk about. I actually want to start with Killer of the Flower Moon, which is going to be from Paramount Pictures, which will start in theaters on October the 6th and then hit Apple TV Plus on October the 20th of this year. And this is actually based on the history of the turn of the 20th century and the Osage Nation and the Osage Nation murders that happened in the United States. And basically, the, these Native Americans that were, were placed on this land 
the land ended up having oil on it. So they created mass wealth, and that was not okay with some people. And that's why they decided to try and take that wealth back from them. And if you see the trailer, you'll know exactly who I am talking about. But this is also kind of a improbable romance story of Ernest Burkhart and Molly Kyle. Now, if you look at the cast of this thing, it's stacked. Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Lily Gladstone, and so many more that are going to be a part of this thing. So this, and by the way, director Martin Scorsese, so that should tell you a lot too right there. But there's a lot of intensity to this thing. There's a lot of uneasiness to it as well when you're watching the trailer. And it's kind of billed as a Western crime saga, but it's almost like, I don't want to say modern Western because we're still talking about the turn of the 20th century here. So you're not quite in that old West vibe, but it's almost like a Boomtown type story mixed with a Western. If you know what what, what Boomtown is, it's, it's an oil term. So Hey, Google it, kids. You might learn something today. But it just the two characters uh, of Ernest and and Lily, and excuse me, Molly. You you've got the two of them together, and the betrayal is part of this thing too. Now is that her him betraying her and and all this other stuff? We'll we'll just have to wait and see when we see the movie itself. But this is an interesting little nugget of history that I certainly didn't know too much about in the Osage Nation until I started doing a little bit of digging upon seeing this trailer and to see this sort of play out on the screen, I think is going to be really, really interesting and seeing how these performances come out and just, you know, seeing Robert De Niro play the villain a little bit again, I think it's going to be interesting in the, in the interactions between he and DiCaprio and, and certainly something that we've seen before with the two of them. But at the same time, when you get, Leonardo DiCaprio, Martin, Robert De Niro, and Martin Scorsese together, that that alone is something that deserves attention for sure. So this is what I'm keeping my eye on for this October Killers of the Flower Moon, not just in theaters, but coming to Apple TV Plus as well. Here's another trailer that caught my attention from earlier in the week, and that was for a Suicide Squad anime that was announced at Anime Expo recently and it is Suicide Squad Isekai and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly so we had the trailer from that which is going to be coming from Warner Brothers Japan and Wit Studio and Isekai actually means another world in Japanese and that is exactly what you see in this trailer which is predominantly featuring Harley Quinn and the Joker that clearly gets get transported to another world to take on these really interesting monsters. You see dragon, you see almost these, you know, pig warrior, you know, like hog, almost like razorback warrior type things that they're that they're taking on. So who knows what other like fantasy type elements they're going to be taking on. But we also see Amanda Waller really quickly in this trailer. And if we're talking about the Suicide Squad, I doubt that we're going to be stopping with Harley and the Joker. There's going to be more that are going to be revealed at some point. Now, we're not going to see this until 2024, so that is a bit of the a bit of a bummer there. And you've got Iri Osada, who's going to be directing this thing for Wit Studio, who you might know. Wit Studio does Attack on Titan. They did Spy X Family as well, and plenty of others. So they're very well known in the anime space for sure. But again, this is DC, 
and Warner Brothers stretching out DC properties into other areas that are very popular, not just here in the United States, but worldwide as well. And it seems, and you know, the Suicide Squad lends itself very well to anime, I think. Plus, there's low risk here because you're not taking a chance of upsetting angry Batman fans or angry Superman fans or whatever. Now there's going to be Harley and Joker gatekeepers that are going to be a part of this, I'm sure. But at the same time, there's a lot lower risk of that when you're doing an anime like this. Now, would I love to see a Batman anime or a Superman anime or, you know, take your pick, a Green Lantern or Flash anime, I think would be spectacular. But this one seems like a good way to kind of enter that space. And they've kind of entered that space already a little bit, but this is definitely a true DC anime that we're going to be getting in 2024. And the, the trailer looks really, really good, quite frankly. So I'm looking forward to this a lot. None of the voices have been revealed yet or anything like that. There's probably going to be English and Japanese dubs to this thing. So, you know, just going to keep an eye on updates for that news. But for now, this is one I've definitely got on my radar. Super interested to see what's going to be happening with Suicide Squad Isekai when it does come out. And hopefully we get more information on that soon. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Again, make sure you're following along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and on threads. Now, by the way, yeah, we jumped on threads pretty quick. Also at Down and Nerdy on Facebook and at Down and Nerdy pod on TikTok. Make sure you're subscribing on your favorite podcast app. That helps out a ton. And you can find it all at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.